God has created all things. It says in verse 15, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. All the men in the fellowship said amen. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. The first surgery in the Bible. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we recognize what it is. It is a letter sent from you, instructions to humanity about who you are, what you're like, and what your will is for all of us, as well as a plan of salvation. We pray, Lord, as we explore the meaning of marriage this evening, that you speak to our hearts, we guard our hearts, and that we submit our lives to you in obedience to what you have as our maker. Fill us with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. One of the texts that we started with when we started this mini-series is in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. In other words, many people follow after their feelings or follow after whatever their logic dictates or tells them whatever their mind says I should do, you have to go and follow that. But ultimately, you will follow wherever your heart is. And whoever you let have your heart will be in control of a lot of things that you do. And that's why you got to guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life, where you're going, what you're going to do, what you will sacrifice for. And if you give your heart to somebody that does not deserve your heart, you might find yourself in a pit of despair. You find yourself in a place that you never even imagined you would be, but you're there anyway. You find yourself, how did I, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that to them. I told them I love them. I told them that they were my everything. All these disgusting things. You look back at it, how did I do that? It's because you gave your heart and your heart determines the course of your life. And so here in Genesis chapter 2, we discover this is the passage where marriage is first defined. Genesis chapter 2, as man and women, women was created, this is the passage where we find out what God's intention is for marriage. And he says in verse 18, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. So the first thing in the Bible that we see that is not good. 
you know, God created the heavens and the earth. It was all very good. And he rested on the seventh day. But there was one thing that was not good. And it was the fact that this man was alone. Once again, all the men said, amen. It's not good that man should be alone. It was never the intention that man would be by himself. Now that is not necessarily just talking about singleness because that's okay. Some people are called to singleness. Some of you believe that it's a curse, but believe it or not, it is a gift. And if you don't wish to be single the rest of your life, you probably don't have that gift. So don't worry. But the key is, no matter who you are, you are not intended to live by yourself. We need each other. And so, not necessarily talking about singleness, but talking about in fellowship, God sought out to make him a helper comparable to him. And what's interesting here is, first, before the woman comes, out of the ground, it says in verse 19, God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So he named all these animals. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So you're looking at elephants, really great, but not, uh, not someone I want to spend the rest of my life with. You know, elephants are great. I love puppies. Puppies are awesome, but not exactly what I was looking for, God. He was not able to find a helper Amongst all the animals. Maybe you're here today and you're like, why is it I, I cannot find my soulmate? I cannot find a helper. Maybe you've been hanging around with a bunch of men that are basically animals. No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying here is that God, so many of you are concerned about who you're going to date, who you're going to marry. A lot of you, like this is the forefront issue on your mind. Who am I going to end up with? You know, you're always concerned about who everybody else is dating, whoever everybody else is seeing, and who you will spend the rest of your life with. But let me just point out to you first in this passage, it is God who solved the problem and it is God who found the solution. The one who said it was not good was God. It wasn't man. Adam didn't know any better. There was no such thing called woman. But God was the one who pointed out it is not good that you're alone. And so I will make that helper. And it was God who brought that helper, Eve, to Adam. And I wonder if we just took, if we just stopped right there and understood that, you know, Proverbs says in chapter 19, verse 14, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers. You receive a house, you receive money, you receive your inheritance, especially in those days, from your father. You inherited as a man from your father those things. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife, a good wife, a faithful wife is a gift from God unto mankind. I love what Pastor John Piper says. He says, marriage is God's doing because he personally took the dignity of being the first father to give away the bride. Genesis chapter 2 verse 22 and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. He didn't hide her and make Adam seek. He made her and then he brought her. Beautiful imagery there. That a helpmate is a precious gift from God. Now, what I'm not saying here, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that men are just supposed to sit around and wait. I'm not saying that, all you guys here just kind of just chill out and just like, 
you know, sit at home and just one day God will bring her to you at your doorstep and like, hey, so I want to get married. It does not happen that way unless you go to the mail order bride business and that's not, that's not okay. Well, it might be for some people, just not, not for me, sorry. And in fact, I heard a pastor once say that if you look throughout the Bible, the template that God sets for us is that God is the initiator and man responds to God. Think about anything you could ever do for God. It's always a response. You pray in response to what God has already said. You repent of your sins. You turn to God because he died for you. He has made a way for you to enter salvation. Anything you do for God, thankfulness. You're thankful because God has done something. Any action you have is responding to God's initiation. And as we as the church are his bride, in the same way man is to be the initiator and the women are to be the responders. So men, we have the template before us as God has laid it for us. We are the leaders to go out, be diligent, to seek out that good wife. But if we have not found her yet, that is okay. Don't be worried about it because ultimately it's God's problem. Let him find the solution. Let him make that, that helpmate that will be suitable for your life. So don't try to force God's hand. But here's the other thing that it shows us right here in this passage. Before Adam was given a mate, he was given a mission. Before he was given a mate, he was given a mission. Here Adam was in the garden and he was told to rule and to reign and to, to name all these animals. He was in charge of the creation and that's why God put Adam right there on the earth. To reflect his image and as God is ruler over all we made in his image have some form, diminished form of dominion that we can have over the earth. Men rule over all kinds of different creatures, even if some creatures are more powerful than us. I can't fight a bear, but I still have dominion over a bear. And in the same way, Adam was given that mission and was given that charge. So before you're given a helpmate, you have to ask yourself, do you have a mission? And have you found that mission? Because, and here's, here's the other thing. So many ladies are out there just like, you see the guy, you're like, oh, if only he got it together. Come on, man. You're like cheering him on. Like, find your mission. Find your passion. And you're just like, you see that guy, he's, like, he's really cute. He's really kind. He's, just, he's the perfect guy. He's just not there yet. He doesn't know what his calling is in life. Before you have a helpmate, you need to know what your mission is. What is she, what is she there to partner you in doing. And that's what we find here is he makes a complimentary helper in verse 19 through 23. So now you have uh, God sees this problem, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam in verse 21, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And really interesting, he didn't make a woman like he made man. He didn't just you know, man, he breathed into the dust and here he came. But for a woman, he grabbed one of his ribs after he put him to sleep. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So here, this is the woman who is the helpmate. The ESV study Bible has an interesting note that the word helper 
means one who supplies strength in the area that is lacked in. The term does not imply that the helper is either stronger or weaker than the helped, but fit for him or matching him is not the same as like him. In other words, a wife is not her husband's clone, but complements him. As Adam needed another helper, he didn't make another man. He didn't make a clone. He made someone who could fulfill in the areas that he was lacking. Biblical marriage, the case for it is right here in Genesis. And it's saying that both sexes need each other and neither one is superior. Which is interesting because many people say, well, how could you be against homosexuality? How could you be against so many of these different things? What we're saying by standing up for biblical marriage is saying that neither man nor woman is better than the other. But we need each other. We can't have a world filled with just men. And we can't have a world with just filled with women. We need both sexes in order to help each other in this wall called life. The beauty in dance is that one takes a lead and the other submits. Does it mean the leader's any better, worth more than the other? But by one taking the lead and the other submitting, you have a beautiful dance. And it's the same way in marriage. To say that the husband is the leader is not to say that he's better. But in the biblical, uh, in the biblical worldview, what you find is the person who's leading is there to serve. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must become his servant. And not just of a few people, but, but of all. It's the pyramid flipped upside down. Instead of you being on the top and you command everyone beneath you, now you flip the pyramid, you're at the bottom so that you can serve other people. And that is the role of the male. He has a responsibility to protect, to lead, and to guide the woman as she complements in his calling. It does not mean that he's any better. So in God's kingdom, the primary role of leaders is to serve others. And so some, some people look at this whole complementarian thing versus, uh, you know, some people say that these roles are equal and you can switch them and you can have women pastors and you can have women that just do whatever men do. And, and listen, I'm not saying that women are inferior to men at all. They just have different complementary roles. And I think... Nature teaches us that there are some roles that men have that women shouldn't have. For instance, there was a shooting at, um, in Aurora, Colorado, in the movie theater. A lot of you know as that Batman film was, was playing, there was that mad shooter that killed a number of people. Well, if you know some of the stories, there was a guy who was there with his girlfriend on a date, and he covered his girlfriend by diving over her, got shot and got killed and protected his girlfriend. Now, I have heard a lot of things. I have never heard one person say, well, you know what? Why would he do that? She had a right to die if she wanted to. But deep down inside of us, we all know there's something noble and something right about the men laying their lives down for the woman. To be a leader doesn't mean that you're better. It means that you take the responsibility to protect others. And that's what the biblical worldview is teaching. Here's a a quote by David Gutzik. He's talking about this guy who's a, a commentator named Barnhouse. He says, There is a beautiful Jewish tradition saying God made woman not out of man's foot to be under him, nor out of his head to be over him, 
but she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her and from next to his heart that he might love her. Beautiful. Well, verse 24, what is the purpose of marriage? It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Well, this is really interesting because in those days, this was so important, especially every Jewish person knows back in those times that you had an obligation to respect and honor your parents and make sure that they were well off and taking care of them. That's one of the biblical commandments to honor thy father and mother. But here, when you become married in this holy covenant that God himself has established, what's happening is your obligation to your spouse is more important than your responsibility to take care of your family, your parents. Interesting. And just as Jesus left his heavenly father to be joined to his bride, the church. You see, the purpose of marriage is to reflect the glory of God. And we're going to see that in Ephesians 5 in the coming moments. It's to reflect the glory of God. Just as a man leaves his father and mother to be joined to his wife, Jesus left his heavenly father to be joined to the church. And so we are to reflect that in our marriages. It's something that God himself has established that we are to be fruitful and multiply. And just as God created us in his image by having children, the image of God is replicated throughout the whole earth. And as we share the gospel and people get saved, his image is restored from being broken. It's a beautiful thing that God himself has made. And because God has made it and God is the one who joins these two people to become one flesh, you hear that saying, let no man separate what God has joined together. Because this is an image of unconditional love. And by messing with marriage, you're messing with God's image of his love for his people. Above all else, marriages in the church, and by the way, statistically, they are better. You hear the, the statistics that 50% of all marriages fail and end a divorce. Actually, well, that's true about the world, but not in the church. People that attend church together... Couples that are married, stay in the church, only 15% of them get divorced. That's a new t statistic. It's actually blowing people's minds. But what God has joined together, let no man separate because God has done it. So we are to reflect his love. And even if people hurt you, people do nasty things, justifiable things, it was never God's intention for these two to separate. Because this was to reflect, even as Israel has rebelled, we have sinned, God always forgives and always takes us back. It's the perfect original design. And one other verse to take note of in verse 25 says, And they were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And hopefully we're at the point in our lives where we're not going to laugh every time we say the word naked. Good, you're mature, more mature than me. Anyway, what's beautiful about this is a marriage should be a place of vulnerability and honesty. And you can have that special moment with just each other. Despite your flaws, despite your mistakes, your imperfections, you can be free from shame. There's something awkward that happens when you stare at somebody. Right? If you stare at someone long enough, they're going to feel uncomfortable. 
because you, you feel like someone's trying to pry into your soul almost. But here, before sin entered the world, here were two people where they had absolutely nothing to hide. They could just be with each other and know that there was no judgment, no ridicule. There's nothing that they didn't have uh, of each other. They both were each other's. And they were both designed for each other to fit together in unity, in marriage, and in life. And marriage should be a place that no matter your flaws, your imperfections, you are each other's. You belong to one another. And you can be free of shame. And know there are certain things you can share with that person that you don't have to share with anyone else in the world. And it's a safe place. And that is to also reflect how we can approach God and have this intimate relationship with God without fear that he's going to expose us. Because there's a part of us that wants to hide things. Because we're always afraid, aren't we? There are certain things that you just wouldn't tell anyone. There are certain things that you're afraid if people knew this thing about you, that people would judge you. But in a marriage, it's meant to be that no matter what you've done, you know that they're going to stay with you because they love you unconditionally. And that's the way that God views us. Actually, in Hebrews chapter 4, check out this parallel. It says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings as we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our, our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. So the beautiful thing about this, the beautiful thing about this is no matter what you've done, what sin you've committed, and listen, I'm sure that as young as you are, you have done some nasty things, some bad things, some things you are ashamed of. If you are in Christ and you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you've confessed those sins to him, there's nothing about you that will make him love you less. Not one thing. It's not like you can hide it from God. All things are naked and open to him before his eyes. But he says, even though you've done those things, I still love you. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. A tiny reflection to remind us that God doesn't judge us either if we've placed our faith inside of him. That being said, now the question becomes, what kind of person should we be pursuing in order to marry? What kind of person? We've talked about dating a little bit, but now let's talk about like how do, how do you know that this is the person that you want to be joined together with for the rest of your life? Which also brings up another question, which is, do each and every one of us have a soulmate? Is there a one? Is there one person that you're destined to marry that God is kind of hiding from you for a specific time? And if you just wait long enough, God will just make them glimmer. Kind of like, you know, Robert Pattinson from Twilight. Just going to shimmer. It's like, I know, it's the one. How will you know if there is a one, if you have a soulmate, one person you're supposed to marry, how are you supposed to know who that person is? Well, actually, you might think it comes from the Bible, this mentality that we each have a soulmate, you know, we're made for each other, whatever. But not exactly. A lot of that thinking 
traces back, according to Gary Chapman, who's a, a guy who's an author, he thinks that the concept of the soulmate traces back to the days of the Greek philosopher Plato, who once surmised that there was a super race of adronomous humans that were made for each other, that were actually circle people, and they were split in half by the gods, Zeus, and he split them in half to weaken each other because they were getting too strong as a human race. And so because they were split together, they were searching desperately to find their other half. And once they did, instead of becoming stronger through love, they became weaker. And so that all they, all they could do was just cling together, and then Zeus would just kill them. It was like that, that was the idea of the soulmate. Like, my other half is across the world. I just need to be joined together. But in that concept, love made you weaker and not stronger. It's kind of weird. So are there problems with this concept of the soulmate? I think so. Number one, we're not circles. That's number one. Number two, you also have to remember that there might be passages in the Bible that seem to lean this way. For instance, Joseph, the father of Jesus, not biologically, but, you know, through marriage, Joseph was called to marry Mary. The angel said, I want you to take Mary as your wife. So obviously there's one specific person for Joseph. But just because it describes a person like that doesn't mean it prescribes a person like that. We got to be very careful that just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean that it's making that a command for everybody. Like we're all supposed to be like Joseph, finding the one that an angel, because how would that even happen? Wait for an angel to tell you who you're going to marry. Obviously that's not the case. So are there other problems with it? Yes, I believe so. Think about this. If there's only one person that you're supposed to marry, one person you're destined to marry, then what happens if you marry the wrong one? You just ruined it for everybody else because you married somebody else's one. And now what are they going to do? They have to marry somebody else. And they marry somebody else's one, and then it's a constant cycle. If one person messes up, then everybody's thrown off. We're all marrying the wrong person. So obviously that's not the case. And then what do you do if you get remarried? Someone dies. Someone, you know, things happen. Does that mean that you were really destined to marry two people? It doesn't seem to make sense either. So if we look at these things logically, I think that doesn't seem to be the case. And that doesn't seem what the Bible expects us. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that we're supposed to be searching for one specific person that God has shining for us. And when we find that person, we found the one, the soulmate. Plus, if you think about it, out of all the billions of people, there's only one? Only one person that you could connect with? No, I think the Bible shows us that we have freedom to make wise choices. So there's probably a range of people that you can connect with, but then it's a matter of wisdom. Is this the best person for me, and am I the best person for her or him? This is where you have freedom in biblical guidelines, unlike uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. It says a lot of things like, you, you know, you have to listen to your parents, and they'll choose who you have to marry. Actually, I flipped through a Jehovah's Witness magazine years ago, and it was saying, like, what to do if you feel like you're leading a girl on. It was hilarious. If you're, like, ex-Jehovah's Witness, I'm sorry, but it was really funny. It's like, if you feel like you're leading a girl on, the first thing you got to do is go directly to her parents and apologize for being that good looking. It didn't say it like that, but it was like, paraphrase. I read this, like, go directly to her parents and apologize for leading her on. I'm like, that's awkward. Like, completely skip her. Like, what if you're wrong? And you're apologizing. Like, I think, I think your daughter has the hots for me, and I don't know what to do about it. You should talk to her. And you talk to her, and she's like, what are you talking about? That's weird. And you just like, psh, psh. 
just strange. So anyway, as a sidetrack, I didn't mean to make fun of them. There are, freedom, there are freedoms within biblical guidelines. And we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say are the proper um, attributes we should be seeking when seeking a spouse? That's what we should be asking. Rather than who is that one magical person I'm supposed to marry, and if I miss that person, then I'm doomed to be single for the rest of my life. It doesn't work that way. So have hope. I will say I'm a little bit more mystical than most people. In other words, I do think that there is one person that God has planned for you, but it's not a thing where it's like if you miss it, you're doomed for the rest of your life. It's more so like God knows who you're going to choose, and based on who he's going to choose, he makes that person your helpmate and forms them throughout their life and joins you together. So there's a lot of things we don't understand about God's foreknowledge, and marriage is probably one of them. There's a lot of things where we don't understand, like, how did God figure that I at this point was going to get saved and then talk to this person, share the gospel with that person, they get saved, and then, you know, there's, if you, it'll drive you nuts if you think about how God works. But here's the thing. Worry about your responsibility, finding a person that God would have you to be with, rather than trying to find this magical, like, you know, looking at your horoscope, looking at the stars and trying to determine who it is. Be more concerned about making wise choices. So how can you make some of those wise choices? Well, I'll tell you. The biblical guideline is that the person be a Christian. There you go. Very simple. The only biblical mandate, command, is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, that you do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So the imagery there is, sounds weird to us because we don't know what a yoke is. But very basically, it's when you have two oxen, you have this wooden beam, and they're all carrying this load. You want them to be equally yoked. You don't want to put, you know, an ox together with a rabbit. It'll be unequally yoked. The rabbit is just going to be dragged and die. You need two, same strength, pulling the same weight. A helpmate, in other words. So, if you are finding a person to date, to marry, that's not a Christian, you are going against what the Bible says you should be doing. And here's the thing. Whenever we think about this, we're always just like, but so-and-so does it. And it worked out for them. I had my friend who, you know, like my friend's dad, they got married when he was a Christian and she wasn't a Christian and it worked out fine. Well, yeah, but for every exception to the rule, I can tell you 10 exceptions where it failed. But why is it that we always feel like we're the exception to the rule? I mean, even in the Bible, Solomon, the wisest person on the planet, had his major failing through women. Same thing with Samson. And so we got to be very careful that we don't put ourselves in the exceptions and would more so think about what God's calling us to do. I love what Alistair Begg says. He's a pastor. He says this. To be unequally yoked means to be lacking true intimacy in anything that really matters. I'll say that again. To be unequally yoked means to be lacking true intimacy in anything that really matters. And so let me just hear honest confession. When I was your age, I was just like, well, you know, I, who am I to judge? Maybe God wants me to marry someone who's not a believer. 
That's the way I thought, because, you know, I was 17, 18, even up to, like, age 19. I was thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's because I didn't think that God had this calling on my life. Now, if God told me when I was age 18 that I was going to be a pastor one day, you think I would have had the same rationale? Probably not. But because I thought so low of myself, I was willing to sacrifice and willing to settle. So in the same way, just, just bear with me for a second. Just, just, let's just say that God has a calling on your life. Because he does for each and every one of you. Don't settle for less than God's best for you. That's what I'm saying. And that also means settling with people that claim to be a Christian, but really, you know, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about that. We won't have to talk about that right now. And also, here's the other thing. Last thing I'll say, especially with this idea of the one. So many of us are so concerned and we'll fight. We will fight over a person that we like with somebody else. It causes such division in friendships. You both like the same person and so you're not even friends anymore. Stop that. That's ridiculous. Why do you fight? It's because you all have such a small pool of the same friends that there's nobody else. Since there's nobody, any other options, you're just like, well, I guess this is it. Do or die. Let's go for it. No. There are 7 billion people in the world. And so you, 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 can, only, you can only potentially marry or date half of them because you get the point. And then probably half of them are like age 90. Other than that, though, there's probably a billion people. I just made that statistic up. There's probably about a billion people you could wind up with. So chill out. It'll be okay. So let me give you some guidelines, some wise guidelines according to the Bible in order to be able to choose that person or know whether or not that person is ready to be pursued. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. I'm not going to try to go too long in this, but I think this is really, really important. So please tune in. First, we're going to talk to the ladies. We're going to talk to the ladies about what are guidelines you should look for in a man. We'll be harsh with the guys first. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 22. Ready? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as this church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her, present her, there's that imagery again, presenting her to himself, a glorious church, not have a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one, has, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so based on this, 
in Ephesians chapter 5, ladies, look for the, the following qualities, attributes in a guy. That he is a leader, that he is a protector, and that he is a provider. Leader, protector, provider. Leader, protector, uh, I can't even talk anymore. Leader, protector, provider. So number one, that he's a leader. Look for a spiritual leader. Someone who's committed in his relationship with Jesus. Not saying, look for a person who reads his Bible once in a while. Look for somebody who actually sets the bar high. Where he's not digressing in his relationship with the Lord, but he's growing. Doesn't have to be perfect. No man will be perfect. But look for someone who makes you want to know Jesus more. Not a guy who just puts up his hands in worship. Wow, he raised his hands. He must be really close to God. No. Look for a guy who actually is pursuing the Lord and committed to his relationship with the Lord. Look for a guy who's a leader. Ask yourself, how does he treat his family? How does he treat his sister, his younger brother? How does he talk to his mom? Is he a leader at home? Does he put away the dishes? Is he a slob? How does he treat younger people? Do younger people look up to him or are they afraid that he's going to make fun of them? Is he one that ridicules other, others or is he a person who's a servant, a servant of all? Is he someone you can follow or do you have to take the lead and drag him behind you? Is he wise? Not necessarily smart. Doesn't have to be the smartest person. But does he make wise decisions? He might, he might not know everything about algebra, but does he make good decisions? He says, you know what? I'm going to be at church even if no one else will be. I'll be there to serve at that event even if no one else wants to. And so guys, take a hint. Like if you're not doing these things, write these things down. Like start serving. Show up. Be around. If you want to talk to ladies, start serving in children's ministry. Lots of ladies there. It's true. A guy who's a protector. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. That we are to present a woman to God, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the woman should be holy and without blemish. So a protector. Find a man who will protect you. And I'm, I'm not saying find a guy who has muscles. Because there will probably be only like three people that qualify here. Just kidding. I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. Find a guy who's not going to take advantage of you. Find a guy who's, in, in, in a weird way, I don't know if I should say this. In a weird way, there are certain girls that will flock around a certain type of guy because they know that they're not a threat. And I wonder, can we be as men, guys that women are comfortable around? Because we're not looking to take anything from them. We're not there to just, you know, to flirt with them. We're not there to take advantage of them. But we're there to actually protect them and to guard their purity. Which means you need to be an honest person and a person of integrity as well, men. So ladies, if you see him lie to his friends, guess what? He will lie to you. Find a person who's honest. Not a person who makes jokes that are inappropriate 
a person who is fine cutting corners, but a person who actually goes the long way so that others are served. Find a guy who's a provider. That's the third one. Ask yourself, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse um, 29, that this man nourishes and cherishes his body just as the Lord does his church. Do you find this person to be a hard worker or does he procrastinate? Is he disciplined? And listen, I've been a procrastinator all my life. It's terrible. But at the end of the day, there has to be a time when you, you mature and you buckle down and you say, you know what? If I don't take this step, then no one will. If I don't learn how to pay the bills, then no one will. If I don't learn how to get up in the morning and be on time for work, then no one will. You need someone who's going to be able to provide for you. Someone who will be there on time. Someone who's not going to get fired like, oh, I got fired, honey. Why do you get fired? Because I was late for the 50th time to work. Find someone who's going to be able to actually take care of you. Be disciplined. And also someone who can nourish you in the word of God. Which means that your conversations, your conversations don't always have to be about God. I'm not saying that. But do you have godly conversation? Is it edifying? Do you leave edified? Or do you feel like you were drained after those conversations? Do you feel encouraged? Does he build you up? And not just talking you up by saying, oh, you're so pretty, oh, you're so lovely, whatever. But actually speaking truth into your life. Saying encouraging words from the scriptures that give life so you know more about how you can become a helpmate and find your calling in what God is calling you to do. Okay, so leader, protector, provider. Guidelines for men. And we'll wrap up with this because we're out of time. Guidelines for men. Number one, she has to have a committed relationship with Jesus. She absolutely has to have a committed relationship with Jesus. There have been many Delilahs that have taken down Samson. There have been many women, and the book of Proverbs talks all about them. There are certain women out there that are just out there to mess with men because it gives them a source of power. Actually, what you see in Genesis chapter 3 is that part of the curse is that women will always try to rule over men. Will always try to usurp, usurp authority. And if you don't feel like that now, you will once you get married. It's part of the curse. It's in the Bible. So stay away from those kinds of women that are just trying to seduce you. The women that tried to, like Potiphar's wife that tried to seduce Joseph. Number two, which leads to the next part, find a woman with inner beauty. Proverbs 31. A woman that doesn't spend as much time in the mirror as she does in front of the word of God. A woman who could care less if it means that she is spending more time with Jesus. And so listen, ladies, I'm not saying that don't care about how you look. But what I am saying is don't go out of your way to grab a guy's attention. And that is so important because so many of us are so self-conscious. Guys too, you can be self-conscious. But be more attentive to your inward beauty. As 1 Peter chapter 3 says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. 
Okay, so that also leads to the next part, which is find someone who is motivated, but someone who is submissive. As guys, we have the responsibility of taking the lead, which means that, here's the thing, you're, you're going to go on a date. You're not going to know where to go. And you're going to say, where do you want to go? Guess what she's going to say? I don't know, wherever you want to go. Secretly, she knows exactly where, you, where she wants to go. And it's secret code for figure it out or you're in trouble. But you know what? She'll never tell you where she wants to go, but you just got to guess. And if you're wrong, the bad date, the one that went south, gets blamed on you and not on her. So you protected her. It's messed up, I know. But listen, that's the way it goes. So that, because here's the thing. If it turns out that she chooses and you go and the waiter was terrible, the service was terrible, the food was awful, then she feels terrible. She feels guilty like she ruined the day. You don't want her to feel that way. So it's better for you to take the blame, you to choose something dumb and wind up being wrong. So we take the lead. That's what we do. So find a woman who's motivated, has ambition, has passion, but she's willing to submit and say, you know what, that's fine. Let's do that. Find a woman who's compassionate, who has a heart for the lost. The Bible actually talks about in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in Titus chapter 3, talks about women there are some, especially young widows, it says make sure that you tell them it's okay for them to get remarried and whatever because a lot of them will go from house to house and just gossip about other people. And there are some women that can honestly be, and this is not just a women thing, but sometimes they can just be nasty with each other, always slandering, always gossiping. You don't want a person like that. When, whenever you're just hanging out, it's like they're always talking about how mad they are at somebody else. Find a person who's compassionate, who has a heart for somebody else who may not agree with everybody, but at the end of the day is willing to pray for that person, who finds the best in other people. And find a woman who is patient, 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 because us guys, especially me, are very, very impatient. You need a woman to cool you down. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 says, Love suffers long and is kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And for both genders, pay attention to how they use their words. Are they diligent? Because no matter what, you're not going to find the perfect person, like I already said. You will not find a person that fulfills all these things magically and they're just the one. If you do find that person, then most likely what's happened to you is you become infatuated. You're looking through rose-colored lenses and all you can see is red. And all you can see is love and you're just, it's clouding your judgment. So what you have to do is if you can't find anything wrong in the person, then you have to ask yourself, is it possible that I'm just infatuated? Because there will come a day when they disappoint you because they're not God. There will come a day when they fail you, because they're not God. There will come a day that they, they promise something to you and they're not able to fulfill it. How will you react on those days? When they're nasty to you, when they're unkind, when they don't feel like doing the things that you're asking them to do. True love loves people at their best, or sorry, true love loves people even at their worst, not just their best. 
And if you really love someone, you're willing to look at someone throughout their faults and say, even with all these problems, this person is still someone worth pursuing and still worth loving because Jesus Christ died for me and loved me, not when I was at my best, performing my best, but even at my worst, Jesus loved me and died for me. True love has no one than this, that one would lay his life down for his friend. And in marriage, you are laying down your life so the two can become one flesh. And that is the beauty of marriage and that is the beauty of the image that God has placed in the Bible to symbolize his love for us. Let's pray.